First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate Cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. Before we get into this week's episode, there's something I'd love you to give a try. We've just launched a new online streaming platform, Intelligence Squared Plus. It's packed with over 20 years of our debates and whether you want to tune in live and watch along and ask your questions or watch back on demand, everything is totally ad-free and there's endless hours of discussion to dive into. The usual price is £14.99 a month, but we want to give you, our podcast listeners, a special offer to give it a try. For 10 days only, we're offering a subscription for only £10 a month, and the offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday, 20th December. Get it while you can. So if you want to join the Intelligence Squared Plus community, visit intelligencesquaredplus.com or click the link in the episode description to subscribe and use the discount code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching today. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're looking at the weird and wonderful cultural and biological history of slime. And for those of you who don't love slime, we encourage you to keep listening for some great facts about the powers and potentials of this substance. Our host for the episode is journalist Amelia Tate, and Amelia is joined by science journalist Susanna Vedlik. Here's Amelia with more. Slimes and those who produce them bind our world together. Physically, it sits between a solid and a liquid, and culturally, it can provoke anything from disgust to delight. Today on the podcast, we're talking all about slime, what it is, how important it is to our natural world, and our cultural love-hate relationship with slime. I'm joined now by journalist and science writer Suzanne Viedlich, whose book Slime, A Natural History, rigorously delves into this ubiquitous yet secretive substance. Suzanne, welcome to Intelligence Squared. I wanted to start by asking you how you first became interested in slime. I mean, you mentioned in the book um, that this first became a topic of interest for you about 20 years ago uh, when you read an article about snails in The New Scientist. I mean, what was it about that article that captured your attention and and how did it keep you kind of interested in slime uh, ever since? Yeah, it was, you know, sometimes it's just small things that get you interested. And and then you end up 20 years later, having written a book (laughs) that took three years to research. The thing about the article was that, first of all, I'm a biologist, but I had never before thought about slime. I mean, if it's like a real substance, something that you can describe, describe or that has functions. Uh, So that was the first surprise for me to, to read about it. And then in the article, it was just beautifully described how snails communicate via their slime trails, uh, that there are messages hidden in there, like contact ads. So males of some species, or maybe even all, I don't know, I mean, it hasn't been researched really, just in a few species, uh, the males can read from a slime trail if it's a female 
who went there, um, if she's healthy, has parasites, which direction she went, the species, stuff like that. So I thought at that moment, like almost 20 years ago, that there have to be more interesting slimes, right? It can't be that just snails produced fascinating slime and uh, our mucus is, is really boring. And that stayed with me, you know, like, like journalists, you, you rip the article out, keep it, and there's like dozens <laughs> of them. Yeah, and in the end, I ended mm-hmm. up choosing that topic. And that is definitely what you get a sense of from the book, that that slime is everywhere and it's a substance involved in everything from sickness and sex to death and life. And I think you even wrote, in all my years of researching this fascinating material, I've yet to encounter a slime-free creature. Um, So your thesis was right. But I'm, I'm wondering, and this is a little bit of a mean question because I know that repeatedly in the book you say... Um, that slime does defy definition, but can you just define it for the listeners? I mean, what makes a slime a slime to you? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. <laughs> um, that uh, that I'm still uh, working. I'm still working on the answer. Uh, I can first say what isn't a slime for me, or what what it, what the slimes are that I'm not interested in. So there's there's one mm. category of slime, of course, that's just a product of dis- decay. So if a body, an organism decays, uh, it will dissolve, and then of course by going from solid to liquid, it will pass through a slimy phase. But that's just disorder. The cells break open, the tissues uh, disintegrate, but that's not a slime that does anything. And then, of course, we all know there are the toy slimes. They're really fun, but again, they don't really do anything. So that's not my kind of slime as well. What I'm interested in, that's, that's the slimes that organisms, all organisms, microbes, plants, animals, humans, obviously, maybe even aliens, <laughs> produce. Um, and that's surprisingly complex material that you can describe. And all these slimes on a physical level are are similar. They're hydrogels. That means they consist mostly of water that's that's bound by molecules. And that what what we call a slime, really a material that has that that characteristic texture and behavior, you know, that that slow dripping, it's it's stickiness. And and that comes from that inner structure. And that's that's the slime I'm Mm -hmm. interested in. And I just want to contrast that with with how the Oxford Dictionary defines slime, which is an unpleasantly thick and slippery liquid substance. Um, I'm just interested in, in what you think about the word unpleasant there, whether that's a fair assessment. And I suppose what you've learned uh, when researching and writing the book about why exactly so many of us do seem to have this sort of innate uh, disgust towards slime. I mean, is it innate or is that a version learned? It's learned, really. I mean, of course, um, disgust is like is, is a fundamental emotion, and we're all equipped to to be disgusted. So right, when we're born, we have that ability. But uh, the fascinating thing about that emotion is that as kids, we only learn what we should be disgusted by, and and that's I mean it makes sense because uh, risks can change, and disgust is supposed to keep us away from from pathogens and and parasites. And and like I said, the risk can change, so you have to learn what is a danger to you now as compared to maybe people in, in medieval times. And the, the problem for our disgust system, of course, is that, that we can't see microbes. Usually we can't see a parasite. So how can you protect yourself? And I think that's why we're so usually so disgusted by slime or bad smells, for example. They're like a, a symptom of contaminations. But now, of course, in, I think we go overboard because like like you said in the dictionary why unpleasant it's it's so it's so fascinating to see that people are so disgusted by this stuff if, if you see in the media if there are articles on maybe let's say 
uh, snails and the slime and what you do. I mean, uh, like maybe a face cream and stuff like that. It will usually always begin, please read or stay with me. I know it's gross, but it's really interesting. And I think that slime is, mm. is like the only and ubiquitous and essential material that gets that kind of treatment. So, I mean, what about your own relationship with slime then? I mean, did you used to have that disgust reaction? Have you overcome it? I mean, you wrote in the book about kind of touching a frog when you were a child. I mean, was it something that you never really felt disgusted by or has your relationship changed? It has changed because after, you know, by now it's probably six years or so that I've worked extensively on slime. So I'm not as disgusted <laughs> before because that, that's that's it's always the same, you know, you, you might fear something or you might be disgusted by thump, something and then you learn more about it and then it's fascinating to you. And then, of course, that disgust goes away, at least to some extent. Um, but I recently learned that I'm not as hardened as I thought because uh, I got a request by a choreographer, an Austrian choreographer who did a, a show uh, like on stage on slime with just performers, nude, playing and engaging with tons of slime. And uh, I was in Singapore at the time, so I couldn't couldn't really go to the show. But she sent me clips, and it was so hard for me to uh, to even watch the thing for a few minutes because those people so vulnerable to me without clothes, and they have the audience in their you know in their winter clothing just standing around, and that slime so much slime. So yeah, I still have wow. to work on that. <laughs> what kind of slime? Yeah, she told me that they had um, to yeah to get the right recipe. It took like forever to develop it oh my because it dries out so fast. <laughs> if you have real slime, there's um. so much water in there that uh, it will dry out right away, and then of course it loses it loses the sliminess. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. that that was interesting <laughs> because I thought ah not not a problem for me. <laughs> but then okay, right, just small doses, please. <laughs> A step too yeah. far, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, what about your book's place then? I mean, I'm just wondering, you use this nice phrase in chapter three, um, rehabilitate slime. So I'm wondering if that's sort of a personal aim for you with the book. Um, and do you hope that your book will help other people kind of overcome this this disgust that they feel? Yeah, absolutely. Like when I started out, at first I didn't know, would there be enough material to write a book? And then I thought, okay, there's some stuff there. It will be something like funny science, Know, a few animal snails and maybe hackfish and stuff like that and then a, a bit of science and in the end there was so much stuff it was like a mountain that I didn't even know how to how to order you know if all organisms from the tiniest microbe to humans need slime and produce slimes usually more than one kind of slime and they've probably done so from the beginning right from the beginning but where do you even begin I mean uh, what's what's the threat that you can follow what's the narrative if you say it's everywhere and there's so much slime biological slime uh, even in the environment that it glues some habitats together so it's 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 the story of of, cli- of climate crisis. If we lose the slime, those habitats might change. For example, um, and all our illnesses. We have so many so much slime in our body, <laughs> even if you can't see it. Um, that everything from infections to cancer. That's that's all a slime story. And I think everyone who's interested in how the human body works, or is interested in animals or nature, or climate change should know about that. It's just a really important aspect. And then that whole disgust angle. So that that's maybe right now the most important question to me. What else don't we see because we're too disgusted to look? And that's actually where I work on right now, things like parasites. More than half of all animals, maybe up to 80% of all animals are parasites or have parasitic stages in their life. So that's not an exception. It's, it's more like the rule. And still... We're treating them that like 
a phenomenon that we should get rid of or snakes. Yeah, I work a lot of uh, snakes. It's the same. They're feared. Also have them in mythologies and stuff like that. But we we dismiss the ecological roles. And that's really what, what came from, from the slime story. What else do I not see? It's, it's so hard to look if you don't know where, where are my blind spots. Definitely, yeah. And I do think the book does a good job of kind of convincing you that, you know, if we do pay attention to more slime, there are endless potential uses um, for slime. I really like the example of the Navy trying to use hagfish slime to slow down enemy boats or you wrote about um, using animal slimes to make new kinds of glue um, that could work on damp surfaces or underwater or in surgeries. I mean, is there one potential use of slime that excites you the most? It's actually the glues. I mean, I come from the story of the, of the snail slime and the glues. I mean, that, that's so easy to understand, you know, um, that we all know that if you have like a bandaid on your finger and you take a shower, it will usually fall off because our glues, either they're not strong enough or they're toxic. And then you just take any ordinary, the most boring limpet, but also sea stars and all kinds of mussels, all kinds of creatures. I mean, they don't have a problem um, to just um, stick themselves to some substrate uh, underwater. And then they just move on again. They don't have a problem at all. Their glues are so much better. And that's, that's all slime. So it would be great if we could replicate those slimes uh, as glues because they're obviously environmentally <laughs> friendly um, and they, they work underwater perfectly. And Many biological slimes, they can even, if, if you use them as glues, they can dry out and then you just add some water and then they work again. That's another thing that our glues, our conventional glues can't do. So that's one easy to describe, but obviously hard to replicate example. And how far along in that process do you know um, we are in being able to replicate that? I mean, is it still sort of understudied, I suppose? Yeah, because I, I think that the funding obviously is a problem because, yeah, companies would, would love to, to, to use a glue, a ready-made, biologically inspired glue. But first, the researchers have to produce that thing to, to make it so they can, you can sell it. And, and that's just a really long way to go. But I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like a discipline that's expanding already. And I think there's a lot more to come in the future because we live in, in, a, in a world that's glued, like every piece of furniture, the, the floors, even clothing, shoes, books, there's glue in there somewhere. And that's often the one reason why we can't recycle those things. So if we could mm -hmm. change the glues, that would be like a major step uh, towards like even a circular economy. Yeah, because we've touched a little bit on, on climate change and the changing environment. And I was interested in the ways in which I suppose that slime could potentially uh, help and hinder um, our climate change predicament. I mean, you wrote about the fact that slimes could trap microplastics, um, which could be dangerous or beneficial, depending on, on how they were put to use. Um, and you also write that a changing climate will, it, will itself increase slime production in the oceans, potentially. Um, I know it's a very big question, but could we talk a little bit about, about slime's role in our changing environment and what you kind of foresee? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a huge story. There's not enough research Really, not enough. Um, so, I mean, the, the first, for me, at least, mind-blowing thing was when I found out that slime is everywhere in the environment, even in deserts. I mean, we had just this week, I think it was like the International Day of, of Soils. So that's where slime as well plays a role in, in, in deserts and arid areas. There are microbes uh, that settle there on the ground, and they, they're like the base for 
communities of, of tiny, tiny organisms. You often you can't even see them. Um, they're called biological soil crusts. And they produce slime that glues together like the surface, the particles of, of the sand or whatever is there. And without those communities, there's much more erosion. And that's obviously a huge problem. And then the ocean, sorry, that's bad news. That's really like a slime soup. <laughs> so slime's everywhere. Uh, even on the surface, again, you can't see it. It's like a thin skin of slime that microbes produce. And that's since it's the interface between the atmosphere and the ocean, let's say all the, the, the oxygen that gets produced in the ocean has to pass through the slime layer. And again, all the CO2 that the ocean takes up from the atmosphere, which of course is, uh, is a benefit or it slows down uh, climate change. Um, again, every single molecule of that has to pass through the interface. And now let's say, of course, the planet is getting warmer, the ocean is getting warmer. So those microbes or many microbes are happier if it's warmer, they might produce more slime. That interface might get thicker. What happens and no one really knows. Would all those passages slow down or they could even, for some chemical reaction, um, speed up? No one really knows what happens, but this is, we're talking about two thirds of the surface of the, of the planet. This is really important and we have to know that. Well, I mean, how does that make you feel then? I mean, do you feel optimistic now that you've written this book that people might pay more attention to slimes and, and their important role? Or are you a little bit pessimistic and worried about the way in which things are going? Um, both really. I mean, I, I am pessimistic because in part, the reaction to the book has been so bad. So I never expected that in Germany, for example, my publisher told me that we had, it seems, many, many um, booksellers who refused to stock the shops with the book because, I quote, the topic is too disgusting. And this, this is a first. Uh, I mean, we all know you can you get all kinds of books in, in bookshops, obviously. I mean, True Crime and Fifty Shades, everything. But a, a popular science book <laughs> on slime that tries to show that it isn't as gross as you thought, the material, that's the bridge that's too far and you refuse to cross. I mean, that's just amazing. And I even have relatives, you know, people who like me <laughs> that's what they, they would love to to read books written by me but not that topic they say they can't even crack it open it's so disgusting to them just to see the bird slime so i think we have really far way to go to normalize that behavior i'm not saying like like I explained before often of course slime is contaminated there can be microbes in there so if you see a strange slime don't touch it don't eat it <laughs> but i mean we're allowed to and we should think about it but what makes me optimistic is that I see that the research in, in that area is really, it's like, it's exploding. So when I wrote uh, like the, the original book in German, I felt that comfortably I could cover all the important slime aspects. And then for the UK edition, I already had to update parts of it because so much was happening. And I felt that, okay, there shouldn't be much more because I, I couldn't fit it in the book anymore. And now that's way too much. There's so much happening, like even the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. Um, if you remember that Carolyn um, Bertosi was one of the recipients and she got it for her work to, that it's now possible to, to observe sugars in the cell that how, how they react and where they go. And then in the end, they end up on, on the surface of on the cell, on the outside. And that's actually a slimy barrier. So that's, that, that's a good sign. But yeah, so oh, read my book. 
<laughs> everyone <laughs> <laughs> read the book everybody and stock the book bookshops no that's amazed me that you know people think it's too disgusting to to, to stock or to crack open I mean I suppose this that leads nicely onto the fact that you know the book isn't just about the science of slime you do have a lot about pop culture in there um, and the ways in which slime has been represented in, in art and literature through the years I mean you, you trace it from HP Lovecraft stories to Netflix's Stranger Things more recently why do you think slime has captured popular imagination in this way for so long you know this association with monsters and aliens and creepy crawlies is that part of the reason that we have this disgust response yeah, I think the the one really, in a sense, uh, strengthens the other aspect. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's it's a relationship. I think, or it's, yeah, it's it's really my theory that uh, we've, in a sense, outsourced slimes from our everyday life. Of course, uh, we don't care for our sick; they're in hospitals. We uh, just throw away uh, moldy food, usually, at least in Western societies. Uh, we don't have to eat it. Maybe even, yeah, sex is probably the only the, the only part of our uh, life where uh, slime is important or can be important. Uh, but then, of course, afterwards, yeah, it's, it's a bit embarrassing. Let's not talk about it. And I think that's why we, uh, our disgust, which is probably a healthy reaction to slime, is so over the top now. There's no check in our everyday life. If you think back maybe 150 years ago, when everyone just threw their garbage in the street and it was it was just slimy stuff lying around and uh, no sanitation, no hospitals, then you had to deal with slime so you couldn't be that disgusted by it. You will not starve as long as there's food there and if it's it's moldy and slimy then you will eat it obviously and and if you don't have to do this then your uh, your disgust is just freewheeling so i think yeah at the moment at least in our societies it's it's over the top which makes it just a great like a sign for monsters you you see something on, on the screen that's slimy and you know that's the villain that's the monster it's just so easy and it's so cheap and it works all the time uh, so at least that's my theory why all the modern monsters are slimy while the dragons of old and witches or i mean nowadays they, they would be slobbering right they would like they only like a huge it's, it's like a dragon but it's slimy on the outside uh, which wouldn't really work uh, in real life um that the drying out part um, but the dragons are all scaly and dry because maybe even people wouldn't have known why they should why slime yeah slime is just, if it's uh, like an everyday um, part of your life then uh, why be disgusted by it you can't afford it really so yeah being disgusted by slime is a luxury right <laughs> that's a great way to put it so I mean when you were tracing these depictions of slime I mean when did it start then this association with with monsters and horror I'm not sure I can um, pinpoint like an exact date, but you see maybe from the 50s onwards with the blob, you know, that alien slime that's that's trying to eat Steve McQueen and uh, every other earthling um, coming its way. And then we have this, like the, the real era of slime probably was the 80s with Ghostbusters and movies and like the fly. That's all so slimy. Um, and then I think it went away for a bit. Um, there's one theory that um, was um, after 9-11 when we got all those, you know, movies on terrorists and stuff like that. So a whole different angle in a sense and a whole different fear but then the slime came back of course so we have the new ghostbusters now we have stranger things the expanse it's all slimy <laughs> deep 
Did you know that wherever you are in the world, you can stream live Intelligence Squared debates and discussions? We've just launched a new online streaming service called Intelligence Squared Plus, where you can tune in to all our upcoming events, ask your questions, vote on motions, and also watch back all our previous events on demand wherever you want. The usual price is $14.99 a month, but for you, our podcast listeners, for just 10 days, we've got a special introductory offer of £10 per month. Visit intelligencesquareplus.com or click the link in our description and use the code MONTH10 or ANNUAL10 to start watching. Offer ends at midnight GMT on Tuesday 20th of December, so subscribe today and don't miss out. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. And what about, I mean, you mentioned it's not your area of expertise, but slime is having a little bit of a renaissance with, you know, as a children's toy in these YouTube videos. Um, and there's even a Slumu Institute that hosts different slime exhibitions around the world. I mean, what do you think it is about these slimes that are more delightful than disgusting? Is it just that they're kind of brightly coloured? Yeah, uh, I think that that's one reason. And then also, if you know how it's been made, a slime that you know, I mean, we, we all can handle raw eggs, but if you found found it somewhere in your kitchen, you didn't know what it is, would be like the most disgusting thing ever. So if it's a slime that maybe you created yourself or you know what it's made from or it's colorful so it doesn't look too biological, then I think it's it's fine. And we, we react to the sliminess, we react to the texture and it can go both ways. It's, it's very sensual 
in, in both cases. Either it's just a strong disgust reaction, or you just step back and you can't touch it anymore, or you indulge in it. Well, how do you feel then about this kind of mini slime renaissance? I mean, have you ever played with a, a kid's toy slime? As a kid, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then... Uh, <laughs> yeah, not recently. Yeah, not, not, not recently, not really. But I, I think uh-huh. if I ever, yeah, go back to, to New York, that I would definitely try the experience in this. Just just to know how it is. You know, like like I told you about mm. the, the choreographer and the show, um, the, it's the same in institutes. You can have slime being poured in your buckets and buckets of it. So wow. who knows? Um, yeah, it might be really, uh, yeah, a good experience. Well, you'll have to let us know if you find out. <laughs> Going back to sort of history then, I mean, I really loved um, the story of Patricia Highsmith in the book, who was just such an interesting character who kept hundreds of pet snails and sometimes took them to dinner um, in her handbag. Did you have an affinity with any particular person that you introduced the reader to or a kind of favourite quote unquote character in in the book? Um, Yeah, that's uh, Patricia, Patricia, of course, uh, which... I expected her to be so engaged with the snails because she wanted to shock. You know, she was this rather harsh character, uh, not an easy person. Um, but uh, now I think that we have some sort of woman or women and man divide that I also see in the reactions to the book. So I have a lot of of male reviews of the book who will write, you know, long reviews not criticizing the book, but to me it reads like they're keeping it at a distance. So it's one anecdote after the other. And then there are women who are usually like, oh my God, that's brilliant. <laughs> and let's talk about the sex part. And that I haven't seen a single review by, by a man written who engages with the, are women really the slimier sex? Uh, things like that, you know? So I think, yeah, Patricia f- fascinated me, um, but now I think it's like it's like a bigger part. All there are, have been quite a few artists who contacted me to cooperate on some projects, and it's all been women. Well, could you just explain for the listener what you mean by women as the slimier sex? Yeah, that has had a really long history. That slime, yeah, being something like a label that you put on people to marginalize them. Of course, there has been the uh, theory that we are made up of different humorous slime being one among them, uh, but men and women the same. But still, there is always has been like a dark undercurrent of men, influential men, proposing the idea that women are just slimier, which means a bit more disgusting, weaker, and something that undermines your manly resolve, so to speak. <laughs> so uh, you have to, you have to uh, be cautious, beware women, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And could you explain for the listener just a little bit more about Patricia Highsmith? Because I realized I just jumped right into that. I mean, you wrote about uh, the snail as a symbol of transgressive female sexuality. So could you explain what Patricia wrote about as well as uh, keeping keeping all those snails <laughs> yeah she has uh, a few stories uh, where snails uh, feature rather prominently and it seems well, at least i've read in her biography um that she was fascinating by the very elaborate sex life that snails can have for hours going on and then producing a lot of slime um things like that and she she uses that in her books to have people be Man in that case being fascinated by the snails, keeping snails, or trying to research the snails, and of course, spoiler alert, it all <laughs> ends badly, really badly, <laughs> thanks to the snails. <laughs> right. 
So not not to jump around too much, it's just that there is so much in the book. Um, and this, as you say, slime is so ubiquitous. So I mean, I'd love to start talking about slime's ubiquity in the body, um, which we sort of touched upon earlier, and how it can both act as a sort of protective barrier that kind of helps keep harmful germs away. But we also spoke a little bit earlier about its role in illness. And you write about cystic fibrosis and how too much mucus in the body can be a bad thing. Tell me about it. Tell me about slime in in the human body. Yeah, that's uh, that to me um, was really uh, a revelation. We all know that we have mucus like in in the airways or or in in the gut, things like that. Uh, we're aware of that, and of course, uh, a runny nose when you have a cold will show you that that mucus is there. But um, the interesting thing is that uh, that's just one kind of hydrogel that we have in the body, one kind of slimy substance. There are three more. Uh, one has the most boring name ever, the connective tissue, <laughs> but it's really called the extracellular matrix. I mean, without that that kind of hydrogel, we would just fall apart. We just a heap of cells that it, it's like a tissue glue. It keeps us literally together. But it's it's more important than that because like all the hydrogels that we have in the body, they are the borders between like uh, around the cell, like we mentioned uh, when it came to the Nobel Prize. Every single cell has a border of slime on the outside. Uh, tissues have it. And like then, of course, all our surfaces on the inside are all coated in slime. And these borders... I think have the trickier job than like the skin. Our skin is supposed to keep everything out and to keep the water in. I mean, that's a hard enough job, but it's it's rather clear cut. But if you take, like, for example, the mucus uh, in, in, in the intestines, in the colon, it's supposed to let nutrients in, but to also to keep microbes out and also to uh, accommodate the microbes that are supposed to live there, that we need, the microbiome. So that's a really, really complex job for stuff that's that's just water with a bit more you know water plus upgraded water and and that's what our hydrogels do uh, even the the connective tissue of course it's the tissue glue but for example it's supposed to keep uh, cancer cells in so that they don't uh, get to migrate but then again cancer cells manipulate that slimy coat on their outside so that it says uh, I'm just a regular cell, uh, don't do anything to me, I'm allowed to leave my tissue, uh, things like that. So there's always, slime is always the interface and uh, we need to understand it much better because probably every single kind of disease, like from infection to inflammation to um, like all those um, chronic gut diseases that we now have and that are on the rise, it's all, there's all a slime somewhere in there. Why is human slime, slime in the human body, internal then, as opposed to a snail who has kind of external slime? I think that it has a lot to do with the with the transition that life made, going from the water um, to land, where you, you just simply you simply can't have your slimes on the outside because it would dry out immediately, or you would lose too much water. You, you couldn't just uh, lose like liters and liters, hundreds of liters every day. Um, so if, if you look in the sea, of course, you have jellyfish and fish, and they're all slimy, usually on the outside, because uh, the, the medium is not a problem. And then you have um, organisms some living on, on the edge, like amphibians, frogs, that they have 
um, to stay moist at least, or they would dry out, obviously. And then come the reptiles with their scales, they already keep the water in so they can even live in the desert everywhere. And our skin does, does the same job. So our eyes are really the only open slime surface that we have. And even there, there is, of course, it's a slimy layer, but even there are lipids like a fatty layer on top just to keep the water in. Even that tiny surface obviously would be too much uh, to, to have the slime open. So, I mean, speaking of the transition from water to land, I mean, a big part of the book is the ways in which different scientists throughout history have kind of tried to identify slime as a source of life, as the source of all life. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that and how the idea was kind of eventually disproved? Yeah, I think um, that's the flip side of our disgust. So when we look at slime, it's just, it's a formless blob and it's somewhat, it, it's threatening. You, don't, you really don't know. Is it just dripping uh, or is it alive already? <laughs> is it crawling or, or dripping? Uh, so that, that seems like a, a threat here to us. Um, but uh, you have people like Ernst Haeckel, the, the German evolutionary biologist, a contemporary of Darwin, who was trying really hard to find uh, another source of life since God wasn't an option anymore. And he came up with the idea that, that slime could be like the source of all life. Because he that, that, that amorphous blob, he saw that as... As, as potential, you know, um, it's not yet alive, but it could be. So he came up with the idea um, that the whole seafloor, at least large part of it, of it were uh, covered in slime, like slightly pulsing slime um, that would, yeah, just create life and, and create new species. And um, he, he could uh, come up with the idea because there wasn't any way for him to, to prove or disprove it. But of course, later on to, in his lifetime, um, there were expeditions like the Challenger expedition 150 years ago. Uh, they tried to, um, to prove that there was this primeval slime. And yeah, all the samples came up empty. And only when they tried to conserve that seawater and poured the alcohol in it, oh, yeah, Eureka, there was slime in there. But of course, it was obvious and it wasn't a real slime, just an artifact. So unfortunately, no, no slime on the Yeah, there is slime on the seafloor, but life doesn't come from there. Did you find yourself having an affinity with these sorts of characters who were so keen to kind of prove this idea about primordial slime? I mean, was it an idea that you found yourself drawn to having written and, and worked with slime for six years? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, just the mindset that they were able to look at slime and say, oh, my God, this is just this fascinating material between dead matter and life. Uh, and, and they just saw potential, so much potential. And for us, it's just, oh, that's gross. It's it's decay. That that alone was so fascinating to me. And yeah, I'm. I think I'm. I'm coming around to uh, to that view. <laughs> and what about then the universe? Let's zoom out. We have mentioned aliens a few times, but what about slime's potential role in the universe? And if aliens were out there, would you imagine that they were indeed slimy? Yeah, I, I talked to a NASA scientist about that, uh, who's, who studies alien life. Or, or he's trying, like many others are, uh, to come up with ways to prove if there are aliens out there or some alien life, uh, what would it look like and how would we recognize it? And so, I mean, this, this is just... Uh, a line of thought that most of the time life on earth for uh, billions of years um, before there were high, what we call higher organisms, there were just microbes, nothing but microbes. And so it's 
something to think about uh, alien life in all probability it would be something like that singular cells in a sense simple life and microbes of course are the masses of slime they build like the most most amazing um, slime uh, creations and so you think okay if they do it here and if they protect themselves by hiding in slime maybe in underground caves even if it's like a hostile environment they can survive if there's enough slime that could be the same for alien life and that's why they study microbes here in like in, in hot springs or those caves um, and their slimes because this is just a way that alien life might survive as well because if, if it comes down to how do you create slime it's it's cheap it's water you need water and then you need some sort to bind some sort of molecule to bind that water and that could be that could exist on other planets as well well we'll have to we'll all have to wait and see frankly <laughs> the answer is unanswered perhaps slime too you you can do a sequel book uh, when alien life is discovered <laughs> So I really wanted to ask you as a final question. I'm just so interested in in the field work that you did for the book. I mean, early on, you write about sticking your hands into these troughs of hagfish um, and these slimy hagfish, obviously, um, and hunting French marshlands for sticky plants and things. I mean, what was your favorite bit of, of field work that you did for the book or, or the weirdest place that your research took you? That, that was really the hackfish. I mean, you can't top mm. hackfish when it comes to slime. Uh, first <laughs> of all, they do look like alien creatures. So they have like four <laughs> rows of teeth and, and, and the mouth the mouth <laughs> um, is like upright in their face. And they have those tentacle things. And they produce like the most amazing uh, slime. It's, it's, it's like it's more like a textile. And uh, I went to California where they pulled them up from the ocean to, to sell them to, to South Korea where they're, they're being eaten. Um, and they keep them in containers and they have to replace the water all the time because the hackfish, they're stressed and they immediately turn the water to slime. And you, you can pull the slime up. It's, it's so heavy and it sticks to your hands. You can't wash it off. So they gave me then a towel that was already stiff with all the slime and you have to, to rub it off. It hurts <laughs> to get rid of it. But still, it's like the most amazing thing. And yeah, you mentioned um, that the US Navy uh, has, or at least had, I'm not sure um, what, what's the situation right now, they tried to use it um, to, to the hack for slime to stop boats. You know, if, if the, the sea around a boat turns to slime, that then they had, that, that stopped in their tracks. But there are other scientists who try to turn that into textiles. Again, bio-friendly um, textiles that, that you can use. And uh, I, I'd love to try that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Suzanne. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much. I love talking about slime. I don't know. I'm not sure if you know this, but it's, yeah, it's a great substance. Uh, I really love it. That was Suzanne Viedlich, author of Slime, A Natural History, translated by Aicha Chukoglu, which is available now. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I've been Amelia Tate. Thanks for joining us. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.